What's going on, everyone? I uh, just wanted to mention before the episode, this was recorded back in June um, before we had our Patreon page, so we make no reference of it at the end of the episode. So uh, patreon.com slash podcast. Um, you can get a bonus episode every single month for $5 a month, and I felt the need especially to mention that this uh, week because we talk about Lucio Fulci's The Beyond in the bonus episode. It's the first time we've done a full proper film review in a bonus episode, uh, so to make sure to check that out, become a patron. Also on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash TX, we are doing 31 horror reviews in October. Uh, throughout the course of this podcast, we have reviewed over 50 different horror or horror-adjacent films, and we are re- revisiting 31 of them uh, on our Facebook page. One a day, every single day in October. Lots of interesting discussions, breakthroughs, revelations happening in the comment section there. So uh, make sure to go check that out. Tell us how much you hate Ari Aster. Without further ado, let's get the episode started. Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your co-hosts, Carlos Cooper, with me as always. Joe Hilliard. And Dave Gurney. And we are here to do the unthinkable, drink a beer, talk about a movie, <laughs> which we have watched. We have, um, we've been waiting for eons, it seems, to drink this particular beer. I know, and it's probably a disservice to the beer. I was thinking about this just as we we were getting on that, you know, this is, uh, you know, a style that, not that you necessarily need to drink it super, super fresh, but I do think it probably is better a little bit fresher. This isn't way old. As Carlos said, we've been sitting on it for a couple months waiting for that right pairing. Well, it's not even that. It's it's knowing what the right pairing would be and then deciding when to do it, and we have a great occasion now. Yeah, the, that's the thing is like some some beers we have and we're like okay we're gonna get to these and then like the right pairing jumps out at us and it's like oh this would be a good beer to do with this one but the second we got this beer there was no question what the pairing so, should be and so we had to had to weave in an appropriate episode into our already somewhat kind of sometimes ahead of schedule like programming (laughs) and carl and carlos like like per use david gurney delivered this beer to our doorstep david what are we drinking oh yeah surprise surprise yeah um so so this is a beer coming out of oregon um though it's a collaboration beer of sorts it's uh made at Wayfinder Beer, which is in Portland, Oregon, um, as a collaboration between Heater Allen, who I don't know that I've ever had any, I know the name, but I have not had their beers before, and they're out of McMinnville, Oregon, and then Modern Times, which is actually a California-based brewery that I think we're starting to get in the Texas market now. I don't know if we'll see this one coming down here or not, but, uh, but nonetheless, this collaborative beer between um, at least those two breweries, but brewed at this third brewery. Um, it is called Terrifica, 
or Terrifica? I don't know. Uh, it is the an Italian Giallo. horror oh, pills. Okay, say that so again, it's an, David. An Italian style horror pills. Okay, it is an Italian pills. So, the, so this is a thing, right? There, there are these Italian takes on the pilsner that tend to be a little bit more aromatic. Um, they, they do the kind of dry hopping that we would associate often with IPAs, but with a pilsner base, and doing that um, to, to again boost the aromatics of it. Uh, a couple of breweries here in the States have kind of picked up on that. I know probably the most famous is Firestone Walker. They have their Peebo pills that uh, is available, I think, very regularly throughout the country. I know we see it here all the time. And uh, and I'm excited to try it because I like the Peebo pills. I like this Italian take on the Pilsner. And the idea that they've woven it into this idea of Italian horror, this... Uh, Subgenre of films that hey, we haven't really addressed on the podcast before. I think it was an exciting opportunity to try to bring some of that in. David, stop everything. If we don't talk about this can art now, we are going to talk about it later. You guys choose. Let's talk about it now. Well, I I was so thrilled because I know I personally have some trouble with this sometimes, but it has instructions on it. Step one, open. Step two, drink. I always get those in the wrong order. Um, so I was not, I was glad to see that this one was helping me out with that. I think we have talked about can art on the show from time to time. Um, the most notable one is the beer we drank. I can't remember the brand, but it was the one that perfectly resembled a uh, Andy Warhol soup can. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Hold on. I've got it. I think Carlos, you are recording from our X studio back when we used Trap to get door. into the room together. Trapdoor. Trapdoor. Yeah. Um, can art sometimes just sells a beer, and I, I know that if the three of us were strolling through our liquor store, looking at the craft beer selection, and this can was up on the shelf, we would pick this beer up based only on like the strength of the marketing of the beer, <clears throat> and it's a very um, giallo, horror themed, like vampire female with the insignias of the th- all the different breweries involved and different placement. But this looks like well, no, a. I don't uh, think that's what that is. This looks like a giallo themed poster, and the three of us are suckers for great poster art and film based beers. Period. Wait, hold on, back up. You realize this is like the cross of Satan on her forehead, not a brewery logo. No, no, I, I think that you might. But look at the chalice. It's got the Wayfinder logo right there on it. Is that what that logo is? That's what that is. Turn the can yeah. around. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But this is so this is Beelzebub. On no, her, that's on her not forehead. a. Well, it's certainly not a pentagram. <laughs> no, but the like satanic cross. That's what it is. Oh, I gotta look. I gotta, Listen, Google. If, I gotta if, Google that while we get if into. The anybody room. on the podcast knows their satanic symbology. It's got to be Carlos. So well, he definitely I'm gonna is because people get all fucking bent out of shape about the upside down cross and like, oh, this is a satanic symbol. It's like, no, it's not. This, what's on this this undead <laughs> woman's forehead is a satanic symbol. This okay, can, so this is satanic. Yes, are y'all, this, are y'all, y'all going to back me up on Satan. this? This fan art is incredible. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, it's it has yeah. Satan on it. That's Beautiful. what I want out of I want, That's not Satan. That's a female vampire. No, the cross, my guy, that I was just talking about. If I could, No, I heard what you said. I'm there, just going to Google that while we talk. If there was a satanic brewery, I'd be a member of that. Well, I'd sign up for the membership. I mean, we've talked about that Brash has satanic mass occasionally at the brewery. Yeah, but I know. And something Carlos about is, them rubs me the wrong way. Carlos, 
Carlos is the least favorable fan of naked Satanists. <laughs> yes, I hated that movie. Yeah. No, I, um, I I love Brash. I like love what like the the thing. I just I am I get slightly concerned about the authenticity of it. Huh. Like, is it like a real thing or like I don't know. I, I think we're down a rabbit hole. This can yeah, is for Zesta. Well, yeah, you did I don't this, wanna... Joe. <laughs> the can art's amazing. Pick up this beer just for the can art alone. Let's move into the film. I, well, I want to take issue with one thing that you were saying, Joe. You're kind of collapsing giallo and Italian horror, and there is a little bit of a distinction there, right? That the giallo traditionally is thought of as more the mystery thriller film that sort of laid the groundwork for what then became kind of the Italian horror with of the 70s and 80s. So Giallo's kind of predated it and tend to be thought of as the films that were a little bit more about sort of murder mysteries, whereas then once we men in, went into the true Italian horror era by the mid-70s, some of those same filmmakers who were making those got gorier, got more supernatural with their premises and and all that kind of... Uh, the, the floodgates... Uh, we're open, so to speak, and in, in, in terms of the content, and we're definitely in Italian horror territory with the films that we're going to talk. About. Well, the first film we're going to talk about this week, though, once we get into the second half of the episode, I think that'll open us up talking a little bit more broadly about Italian films in general, um, but cer certainly exploitation type films or films that were made for um, those kind of audiences in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So to that end, the film that we are watching this week, uh, or that we've chosen to watch this week, is Zombie, or Zombie 2, or Flesh Eating Zombies. It's known under all these names. I think most people will probably recognize it as simply Zombie. Without the uh, it is Right. Z-O-M-B-I. Um, I guess the Italian spelling. <laughs> and uh, That's the Italian spelling, but yeah. in America it had an E on it. Right. And it is a film that was initially released in 1979. And when it was released in Italy, its home market, where it was actually you know, made, it was released as Zombie 2 because it was sort of intended to capitalize uh, on the popularity and success of Dawn of the Dead by George Romero, which had been recut by the famous Italian filmmaker who also was a giallo filmmaker who transitioned into being more of a straight up Italian horror filmmaker, Dario Argento, recut it and added a different score to it, which many people believe is a superior score, and, and I'm one of those people, uh, by the band Goblin, who Argento worked with on many of his own films. And that film, just titled Zombie in the Italian market, was a huge success. And so this was an opportunity because of Italian laws and the way they work um, that really anybody could make a sequel, call it a sequel, and they weren't going to risk any sort of legal implications. There was nobody going to. So they did. Right. <laughs> so, so some, so some producers put this together as a project for another zombie film, which, again, titled as a sequel, but really doesn't have a whole lot of connection to Dawn of the Dead, other than the idea that there is some sort of zombie outbreak that is beginning to happen i i didn't realize that who for the original romero dawn of the dead who did the score for that do you know 
Oh, that's a great question. I just um, looked it up, and the Wikipedia page just says music by Dario Argento, The Goblins. <laughs> uh, it doesn't say anything. I, I mean, I haven't read it. For, anyway, that's neither here yeah. nor there. Zombie, Lucio Fulci. Uh -huh. um, he's what, like 20 films deep by the time this comes out? Easily, right? Yeah, yeah. he's like he made so many films at this point. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a, if nothing else, prolific filmmaker through the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. Um, but yes, I think he was, uh, as you said, somewhere north of 20 films deep, more than 20 films, into his career. Um, having worked in a lot of genres, and we'll talk more about that in the second half of, of uh, the podcast, but you know, leading up to this point, had made some pretty graphic films, and so got pulled into this as the director. And like I said, the basic idea, the premise here is that there is a zombie outbreak that we first see this initially in a boat sort of just um, drifting in New York Harbor. Some policemen board it to try to see if there's, you know, see what's going on. There's just this boat floating out there. Um, there's a zombie attack, um, some concern. The daughter of the man who owned the boat gets pulled into it because again right your father's boat just showed up and there's this sort of mystery stuff going on and so she ends up tracking it to where her father had last been um which is this remote island um in the caribbean and lo and behold there are some strange things going on there that eventually lead into zombie craziness i have an answer to our question the romero uh dawn of the dead with the exception of a song called because i'm the man by the pretty things off their album electric banana it was all music that was chosen from the dewolf music library or library music as uh hip-hop enthusiasts would understand it and so it's just like stock music scores and cues that oh interesting cheaply and throw in there but well no wonder goblin was a big uh yeah. improvement <laughs> to had to tie that loose end up uh, thank you before it drove me crazy um but yeah so i have just like really one thing i want to say before we like jump into it and i let you guys go off um but <laughs> ha there aren't oh, i mean i've been watching zombie movies for a long time not it's i i'll be the first to say my knowledge of italian horror or just Italian cinema in general is very, very limited. Most of it is I just have awareness of certain things, but really the only filmmaker I've seen more than a couple of films from would be like Argento. And that's maybe like a handful. Um, but you don't get a lot of zombie movies in tropical on tropical islands. Like that no. is a very distinct differentiation of this from most zombie movies I've ever seen and a very specific decision that Fulci has made. Mm -hmm. to make it almost exclusively during the daytime and in this tropical paradise. It's a good point. It, it is. It, I, I think that is one thing that this, that stands out about this film is that it doesn't use the cloak of night or, or interior locations that are sort of dimly lit to intensify the horror. I mean, there is some of that, but a lot of it does take place outdoors in the sunshine. Um, and like Underwater? you say, Underwater? At yes. one point? That show oh, was well, crazy. That, that's, <laughs> Yeah, let's save that. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got something. Well, so, so first of all, I mean, so we have, I mean, again, even if we're not all well-versed in Italian horror, um, we are, I think all of us, experienced with the zombie film. Yeah. As We've a zombie film. We've done a few film. of them on this podcast, even. 
Right. Does this stack up? Is it is it a worthy entry into the zombie canon? Um, I'm going to say yes, it is. I feel I just I felt much like Gene Siskel just then. Yes, it is exactly <laughs> that. Um, I, I I I have to say that the path of the film, as you described it, David, is accurate, but it also incorporates what we know about film zombies up until that point because Romero had really paved the way on how zombies work mm-hmm. and it and then they recut as you said um, Dawn of the Dead that's the shopping mall one mm-hmm. uh, they recut it because you're allowed to do that and now Italians have a taste for this zombie so if you're going to exploit it and make a zombie movie he certainly followed in Romero's footsteps but then the gore, the effects, except for the underwater effects, are very, very, very incredible in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I when, go ahead, Carlos, please. Well, I think I think I would also say that it, I, it's a, in my opinion, a very wise decision to do that if you are capable of it. Because you know, I feel like something that gets kind of bogged down in American, like adaptations of foreign films or even just like expounding upon other ideas or things that have been done even if it's a a reboot of a, an american film and not a, a foreign film um the idea of having to give like origin stories or like lay out a ground like lay out ground rules and stuff and that eats up a lot of time mm-hmm. and like you know real estate giving us that exposition and so he's able to just be like i don't know fuck it you've seen this movie right like <laughs> figure it out you know like you all know what right, you've seen is. zombie one yes you, know. you don't i don't have to tell you this again you know yeah. you're not dumb people you've seen the just fucking you know here we go we're <laughs> we're going you know like from the second the movie starts i mean you know there's no like i mean and but and of course he does get into it because like a little bit because it'll be natural for the characters to be like, what the fuck, you know, right. but it's not too bogged down in that and like relying too much on explaining stuff to us. Um, I've got to talk about the underwater scene. Uh, I was watching it at work today and uh, Josh DeLeon of the Blind Owls, former guest of the podcast, was there with me. And as soon as he saw that woman inexplicably toplessly diving, uh, probably should have some clothes on, uh, given all the gear strapped to her back, the chafing that's bound to happen with like all that equipment on bare skin. But the shark, nah, she, she was a pro at it. She has calipers there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like leathery skin from constant topless scuba diving. <laughs> uh, when, when the shark, uh, shows up, I had told Josh the name of the film. He wasn't as fam- he wasn't that familiar with it. I'd say, "Oh, I'm watching this movie called Zombie or Zombie Two or Flesh Eating Zombies." Sees the shark coming, and he was like, "Oh, are the shark zombies uh, like a Sharknado type situation?" Yeah. And right. I want to say, I want to see that film now. I want to see a shark zombie film. <laughs> it- George Romero only has a few. I mean, he can't go in any other directions, but he—that's where he would have been headed. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I mean, th- that underwater sequence is notable for a lot of reasons. Um, you, you know, I think it looks great. It's actually. beautiful. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a weirdly, I mean, I think beautiful is the right term. It's a, it's a strangely gorgeous kind of sequence with, you know, then when you read about it and Joe had shared, um, an article about it and I had heard years ago kind of about, um, them drugging the shark essentially to get it really? because, you know, 
Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we just watched Jaws not too long ago, right? We did our blockbuster episode. And Jaws, you know, notoriously, they had to go move away, pivot away from using a real shark and use a mechanical shark. And they had kind of mixed, um, uh, you know, mixed experience with that that ended up reducing the screen time for the shark. But here, you know, a film just made a few years later um, at a much lower budget, <laughs> you have people like groping, I mean, a zombie groping a shark and totally getting away with it. But apparently, yeah, it had to do with tranquilizers and what they had sort of uh, put into the shark, which probably wouldn't fly these days. Oh, God, with, no, uh, would it, be picketing the yeah, set. Or, and... Yeah, um, but at the time, they were able to pull it off, and it and it really is some compelling visual, uh, you know, experience there to have. I literally didn't That's, even think about that when I was watching it, like about how docile it, the shark was, about like how they were. I, for from my my perspective of it watching it, I was like, man, this is like the cinematography that's happening underwater is crazy, like that suggests a higher budget than what I assumed that the, you know, being right. able to put a camera underwater for a sequence that long. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I didn't even think like, Hmm, I wonder how they got that. I just, yeah. it was all, I was so like, I was so bought into the world, you know, yeah. like I was just like, yeah, I'm here, I'm watching this thing. And I, even though for a second I thought about it from a technical perspective, I didn't once question how they were able to grope a live shark. Yeah. You know, but you, you, go ahead. you guys mentioned the like kind of gratuitous nudity, nudity, and now we've got a. Uh, we didn't even say that the, a, a zombie attacks the shark, and then the right. shark bites the zombie's arm off. Um, but that, but the 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 folks that are okay. So you, we are right into the action, Carlos, as you said, on that boat. But then there is a very long period of time before there's any more real good zombie action. Right. And the exposition to get us there, the trip to the island, how we find the boat, how we find our um, adventurers, is long, but it is it is gorgeous, and it's also an indication of what they were doing in these Italian horror films. Uh, and that's throwing everything into the kitchen sink. You know, I mean, there's conquistadors that rise from the grave. Uh, there's <laughs> in a great in a great uh, segment, and the. And the, and the way that the zombies come out of the earth in broad daylight is just gorgeous horror cinematography and effects. What I really loved about this movie was this balls-out approach to putting everything on the screen and how beautiful it was shot, how beautifully uh, composed it all is what, while we're watching it. But right. I, do, I do have a, a several problems with the film. Yeah. Okay, well, interesting. Th I, I want to be before we we lose the thread too much here with the, just one other note on that sequence because Joe you had shared this article and the thing that I did learn from that article that I had never heard about was that Fulci did not want it in the film he actually refused to shoot that sequence it was right. done by a second unit <laughs> so you know it's so it's funny like one of the most beautiful notable sequences of the film that you know certainly on some level I think. I until now had attributed to Lucio Fulci was actually something he had actively wanted not in the he felt it didn't fit he didn't think it made sense um and so it, anyway it's in there despite him but I think it works <laughs> and, I, and I'm I glad it too. got in oh, yeah what I like, I think, and and I'm really excited to hear that Joe has some criticisms here because I always like to have uh, 
have my assumptions challenged. But I think what I liked about this film when I saw it years ago and what I liked about it again now is that it has that small scale of a lot of zombie films where you have that small group of characters that you're kind of following as this crisis kind of emerges um, in a slightly different setting than what I'm used to, as Carlos already pointed out. Um, I think that some of the acting is not maybe as strong as as in some other zombie films or, or other films in general, but it works well enough for what it is. And it has just some wonderful set pieces in terms of how the violence unfolds. Uh, you know, m probably most notably the, the door getting split apart and, and the uh, woman's head being sort of driven Ooh. into, well, her yeah. eye being driven into the oh, stake wood, uh, you know, po poking out from the door, which is, is shot really well. When you watch that scene and it's like the cutting back and forth between the stake and then her eye getting closer to it and all that, you know, um, and, and the conquistador uh, moment there when they're rising out of their graves, um, you know, c coming at these people as they're kind of lost in the jungle, um, you know, across the board, I just think th this film, it, it, it's, Fairly tight in 90 minutes, but like Joe said, it doesn't rush to get you there. But once it gets there, it keeps delivering the goods. And I think if you if you're into zombie films and you haven't seen this one yet, this is definitely one that I would say needs to go on your list. I definitely understood the giving theater patrons barf bags once I started <laughs> watching. I mean, that you know, we've seen. A lot of stuff at this point right like as far as like gore and like violence and cinema and stuff like that and just your everyday like jason machete slashing of people you know as kind of, we've as an audience have kind of become somewhat numb to that kind of thing it might have been shocking once it's really not that shocking especially after hostile and all like the torture porn like craze that happened for a couple of years but that scene with the door and the eye made me squirm. Like when I was watching it, I was just like, because and it's one of those great moments where you know it's coming and it's slowly building you up to it. And then you're like, oh, oh, and you're just waiting for it. And then it happens. But then it just continues. It's like relentless. And you're just like, oh, oh, my God. It like you get gets like an audible reaction, uh, at least for me when I was watching it. Uh, and that, I mean... Fulci does gore very well, I'll say. It's and, one know. of it's one of three landmark scenes, must see scenes in the Encyclopedia of Horror. And you know, it's the shark versus zombie, uh, the eye gouge. That's that I mean, in the world of good kills in horror, the eye gouge is a top three contender on all of the lists that you see. And then just the classic face of the worm-eyed zombie, the one that appears on the poster. Yeah, that's the one that I, the one that as I was flipping through the newspaper when I was about eight years old saw and it's, I mean, I had nightmares and I've never seen this movie until now. So I, I lobbied hard for this one. So I get some closure in my life, you know, to, to, to close the circle. And I got to say it, 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 I understand now the hype of the film in that encyclopedia of horror film because it is from these films, the work of Bava, or who we hadn't really talked about, um, Argento and Fulci now. It's a big hole in my education that I was so glad that I could fill up. And I intend on going through and watching all of the highlights. Um, 
but the, but from these films and Bava's work came Friday the 13th. I mean, came horror in America as it was defined starting in 1980. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you had had some of those uh, filmmakers who had brought some of the blood and gore into horror filmmaking in the 60s. You know, some of them, I, you know, even though Psycho itself is not quite that gory, um, it, it sort of set a certain tone. And then you had filmmakers like Herschel Gordon Lewis um, and, and a few others in the States who were kind of playing around with that. But like you say, Bava and Argento and Fulci really put it on heavy in their work in, you know, going into the 70s. And that did, it set the stage. And it's amazing. I mean, I love that you shared that um, anecdote about as a kid seeing this, um, you know, uh, advertisement in the newspaper, probably would have been 1980, that it would have been showing here in, in uh, the At States. the drive-in. Yeah. Hmm. And it's just amazing to think, Great you know, band. this this was an era, <laughs> yeah, this was an era where an Italian film uh, could be made and could actually get distribution over here, even if it wasn't a drive-in cinema or, you know, like maybe what we think of as kind of a grindhouse, um, but still that you would be able to see that as kind of popular fare, not just art house film, which, you know, again, there, there's some, there's some uh, overlap there, especially for, you know, uh, figures like Argento, who, who gets probably celebrated as much for some of his, you know, use of color and, and music and whatnot, and uh, not just the gore, but uh, but you know certainly for this film to to have just had that kind of popular release here is pretty cool and uh, and something that um, you don't see a whole lot these days. I had I've never heard of Mario Bava until just now. Wow, Black Sabbath, buddy! You know you you gotta you gotta go back. Yeah, my favorite bands. <laughs> Twi- I know. Twitch of the Death Nerve is Friday the Thirteenth before Friday the Thirteenth. Same movie. Yeah, I mean, I believe um, slight so, slight variation. So Warner's did pretty you, much you, everything before Americans did, and then Americans were like, "No, we made this." You've told us why this film is important, and I think and I think those scenes that that you have highlighted are all canonical scenes, and that you know horror film aficionados know them. But you also said you had some reservations on this one. Oh I no, I could, I, could, I could see where y'all were headed, so I was going to start a fake fight. No, what what were the things that? What no, I mean, yeah, you I would have dug into the uh, acting. I would have dug into some of the pacing. That's it. Okay. But but no, this film is a seminal horror film that any film encyclopedia person certainly needs to have seen. And I'm glad that the show was the reason why I could do it. I mean, I think the acting and pacing are fair, like criticisms. If you're like. You no, know, but I'm going to be no, critical think, of anything about it. No, but I think that you're going. You have to capture this in the in the era in the era and for the budget and for the purpose that it was made. And you're not going to be able to hire great actor, actors. And you're going to have to put the money into the effects and into right. the action and into the frame. And that's Though what I, they did. This was the first time now this was at least my second time seeing it i may have even seen it a third time in there but when i saw it before i either didn't have any awareness of or that 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 was mia farrow's sister who had an acting career herself yeah um but i did notice that i didn't even look up her name i just said that actress looks a heck of a lot like mia farrow yeah (laughs) i sure enough i saw her name first and then i saw her and i was like oh yeah clearly yeah yeah 
So very, uh, um, you know, there, there's a lot of family resemblance there. It's kind of interesting, you know, her where, you know, and Mia Farrow has been in many things over the years, but certainly I deeply associate her with Rosemary's Baby. And so to, to see her. Yeah, I th- that's one of her major roles for sure. Um, but just to think, you know, that her sister also had this moment in uh, in a much gorier kind of horror film uh you know whatever 10 years later like the scene towards the end too i mean there's so many like there's so many things that fulci does really well is specifically in horror and Mm -hmm. we'll talk a little bit more about like the rest of maybe i guess the rest of his film career and like where he finds his stride and things like that but i mean there's that scene towards the end when we're like when everything's really really ramping up Mm -hmm. where a zombie like bites that girl's throat and then just blood starts fucking <laughs> pouring out of it. And just, and I mean, you've, it's not the first blood you've seen in the film, but especially in that sequence, like they're like in the jungle kind of, and like, you know, she's like a fair skinned woman and like just the bright red, just the, this, just the, the way that, the way that it looks and the way that he's able to capture it with this, especially at the, and especially at the time with the special effects and special effects makeup and all that stuff. And I still, I mean, one of the reasons that I love so much going back to this era of horror films is that because of the, and I've said it a hundred times when we talked about the thing, especially the practical effects do like age so well, as opposed to literally anything else. I mean, and this movie, as far as especially the special effects and the gore, has aged mm-hmm. very well. Yeah, and it still has just the same punch, and you know it's still just as visceral today, twenty twenty, as it was forty one years ago, in yeah. nineteen seventy nine. Absolutely, and, and I think you're right. I mean, those practical effects that they were kind of. Um, perfecting here, you know, and again, I know for some people, horror is not their genre. I get it. Probably even some of our listeners are like, ah, I'll pass this episode. I get it. I understand it. But if you, if you can appreciate it, there is nothing more um, exciting than that moment in the seventies going into the eighties where these filmmakers um, started working with these effects teams that were just doing incredible you know like the just the blood spurting and limbs being you know ripped off and real realistic entrails yeah that that are just right yeah when they when you walk in that that scene where the uh you know the unsuspecting uh group of people shows up uh to see the wife of the doctor who you know the woman who's had her eye impaled on the stake and she's being sort of torn apart by this group of zombies who are kind of like lazily eating from her inner that shit was crazy yeah i was yeah. eating lunch when that scene came on <laughs> And and again, paying homage to that Romero had done that in both of the previous films. So here's our here's our chance to kick it up a notch. Yeah, they did a they did a great job. They sure did. And and again, uh, just just to uh, you know make the point here, I don't know if we've we've said it directly, but the music is great too. Fabio Fritzi uh, did the score for a number of Fulci's films. Yes, and I think this is maybe the one that is most. celebrated though though I, I actually i think um uh the for yeah. the apocalypse and there's a couple others that have beyond. pretty the beyond uh, yeah. yeah 
I read, I read that he does these um, like the entire score from the album. He's still, he'll do those live in concert from he time will. to time. He will, and he um, there is a record label that started in the UK and then was purchased by Mondo, which is based in Austin, Texas, called Death Waltz. Mm-hmm. Um, and Death Waltz catalog number DW001 is the soundtrack yeah. to this film. Well, there you go. And they've done the beyond. I mean, their their discography of reissues heavily focuses on Fabio Fritzi and uh, on Jalo horror in general. Like, I mean, I probably my introduction to the proper Jalo genre was because of a record that they had released. Um, it was a uh, the soundtrack to a film called "The Perfume of the Lady in Black." Ooh, great title great title it is a very good title and it is very much like like you were saying that more mystery not quite as much horror but you know right. real mystery kind of suspense situation mm-hmm. um but they really were you know especially in the beginning dedicated to getting all of those great italian horror soundtracks back out into the world that's uh, on vinyl and they've done some cool. really great stuff crazy original artwork like the whole nine you know how it goes these days yeah so uh, yeah a a fun experience i think um something that's missing if you haven't already seen this and you're a fan of horror films in general but zombie films certainly would this beer be the beer to crack open to drink with this film was that was that the right pairing this time guys yes it's a solid pilsner i mean i'm i love a good pilsner i think that that has been established on the show um and <laughs> yes, it has uh and so i'm i'm excited to try a new one and this one i have a feeling if we had cracked it even a couple months ago the aromatics would have been even more pronounced but as it was i definitely was getting it it it, it sort of it um you know it it breathes like a an ipa in some sense but it really drinks light and super easy 4.7 percent um i'm totally lucid I've never been this clear in my thinking. In fact, it may have improved my mental acuity. <laughs> uh, keep having more until it doesn't. And now you having it. I, uh, no, I mean, David, you've you I mean you've synopsized my opinions perfectly. I mean, a pilsner. You're expecting that four point something, and this delivers it. Uh, they, they put some care into this beer. You can tell. And like I said at the top, that the can art seals the deal. Yeah, I um, I liked it quite a bit as well. I like this particular approach to the Pilsner. Um, I do like a Pilsner in the right context, but it is not as often um, like maybe my go-to as it would be for David. Um, but this this approach really has has is is doing something for me. Obviously, great can art, and you know this was only canned in April. Yeah. So no, I mean, it's not, I mean it, yeah, I know it hasn't been that. I don't want to give the impression that, we, that long. you know, and and I probably got it like late May, but I'm just. It the, seems like longer due to that could be that the could be. Groundhog Day esque existence within which we live. <laughs> Put it this way: I that can art has been staring me at the face for a few months every time right. I go to my beer fridge in the garage. Well, I'm so glad we finally seized the opportunity to do it. And part of why we seized that is because we became aware of this second film that we're going to be talking about after the break that helps to us to uh, take a window 
onto Fulci's career um, in, in a broader sense. So we'll we'll tap into that in another beer when we come back. going to pair this next film with a beer that maybe some of our listeners are going to think, why didn't you pair that with the first film? Because uh, it's one that maybe thematically seems to go better, but as we were talking about... Only if you don't know anything about zombie movies. Well, there we go. As we were talking about before, Carlos, uh, you know, kind of made the point that, well, actually... This isn't so good. You, you want to talk about that, Carlos? This is um, it's our a, second time with a version of this beer. It is. Uh, the first time I was, you had given it to us as part of like a care package of stuff that was intended for the show at some point, and I was so excited to drink it that I forced it onto an episode where the pairing was not appropriate. Um, I was swiftly reprimanded by... A one Joe Hilliard. Um, <laughs> I, I, I gave you a severe tongue lashing. Yeah. And, uh, um, fuck, I saw the, the color and consistency of this beer and I lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we had had a different variation of this before. There were two different, they've done what Joe, you said 10 different. Takes yeah, they've, on done, this? they've done a total of 10 with and different we fruits pay- and stuff. Yeah, we paired that with uh, Defy Bloods in episode 94. You That's can hear right. our other review of Brains. That's right. That's, That's right. The beer. Yeah, so Drecker. it's yeah. so this beer that we're drinking is called Brains by Drecker out of Fargo, North Dakota, which I still don't believe exists. Um, and it is uh, a double fruit smoothie sour with blueberry and raspberry. Now, the reason this didn't go with the first one is because it is a very common misconception that zombies lust after they seek for nourishment human brains. But that piece of uh, mythology does not appear until 1984 in Return of the Living Dead. Um, It is not actually a Romarian zombie attribute. Um, So that is a common misconception. I just realized, I found this out, someone told me, Apparently a popular thing to do with these smoothie, slushy, fruit, sours is you put them in the freezer. Oh. So they actually get that slushy consistency when you pour it. I could could totally see you doing this because this looks like I poured a grape smoothie in my glass. Yeah, it is. It is chunky and I can tell it's going to 
There's going to be a lot of fruit in here. Blueberry and raspberry. Yeah, and I'm and I'm getting both on the nose. I mean, I'm distinctly getting raspberry, also some blueberry. The color is beautiful, as with the last uh, version that we had. So I, I'm definitely excited to try another variation on this series that Drecker Brewing has. If I recall, we were pretty unanimous that we loved that first one we tried back in 94. I think so, yes. Well, take us into the uh, film because I'm excited to talk more Fulci. Yeah, so the, you know the, this um, film was, I guess, released last year, 2019. Although I think it's just started getting um, available in the states in 2020, so a fairly recent film. It is called Fulci for Fake, which is a play on the title of an Orson Welles film from the 70s called F for Fake. Which is, have either of you guys seen that one? I have. Okay, yeah, it's it's definitely worth checking out. It, yeah. it's it's a very Watch, it, watch all, watch everything Orson Welles. Sure, absolutely. And all of um, it. You have to watch all of it. Yeah, yeah. Or, Orson Welles is definitely, uh, you know, a, a figure worth uh, worth tracking. But that, but that film in particular kind of stands out as one that, even within his filmography, there's nothing else like it. I mean, it's part documentary, but it's also part commentary on filmmaking and storytelling and all this stuff. So anyway, th this this film borrowing that part of its title from that film seems to want to do something similar with a documentary about Lucio Fulci, but at the same time trying to maybe uh, unsettle us in terms of how much we feel like we will get to know this figure through this documentary. Um, and the way that it does that is through this framing of the film as an actor um, who I had his name here just a moment ago, Nicola... Did, you, did anybody pick up that? Uh, Nicola Nocella. Nicola Nocella. Um, this uh, actual actor who is supposedly preparing himself to play Fulci in some sort of biopic. Um, and, and it's, you know, sort of framed as being him investigating Fulci and talking to the people who knew him and trying to get an idea of this man who he's going to portray. The, way that, really, the way that Jamie Foxx might have done for Ray. Yeah, yeah, right, or the way that uh, Joaquin Phoenix might have done for Johnny Cash. Or yeah, so, yeah, so it's a, it's a very odd framing device, but yeah, you were saying, go ahead, you were right. saying. And apparently, I mean, there is no actual film biopic being made, it's just a conceit for this documentary, but trying right. to frame it, I think, in a way that makes it um, So I was intrigued going into it, knowing that there was this kind of strange framing device, and that it was referencing F for Fake. Was this going to be a really... Um, you know, w worthwhile, high concept kind of look at this enigmatic filmmaker who, by many accounts, was a tough guy to know. Like, they, you know, I, I had heard that over the years that Fulci was not, you know, very forthcoming in interviews. He wasn't somebody who was very so he was, the, he was I, crusty. Yeah. The idea that maybe this was going to kind of like a John Ford like character. Where right. You, just, you know, no matter what questions you ask, you were going to get very limited answers. And so would this kind of dig into it? Um, what, what do you guys think? <laughs> I don't want to, I, I don't want to lead with my opinion this time. I'm curious to hear what, what you thought of this. Well, I mean, I, Carlos talked to the first half about how he was kind of a Fulci virgin and I am too, uh, I'm ashamed to say. Uh, so I did not, I, you know, I went, I'm going to, I guess I'll reference the Joe Dworsky's Dune, uh, 
Yeah. Sure. Uh, back in episode 79, which was our Jordawarski episode, which turned me on to him. And now I'm, we're going back. In fact, remember we were going to do a, a beer and a movie hosted, not hosted, but let's all get together when Alamo locally was going to do Santa Sangre. Yeah. And we, you know, Corona killed those plans. So you find these directors that you maybe have wanted to create a relationship with viewing their films or you don't know much about them. And you watch a, a documentary like this and it's got all the techniques that you usually see the talking head discussions in this case with two of his daughters, archival footage. But uh, it was mostly audio tapes. That I'm sure one of the daughters provided uh, mm -hmm. during you know, some family photos some onset picks, but what's missing from this film in a way that wasn't missing from Joe Dawarski's Dune, where you get to see El Topo and you get to see Holy Mountain and you get to is um, any kind of, of clips from the films themselves. Um, that yeah. was one of my kind of one of my first criticisms of the film, the subject matter, a whole different thing. See, that's very interesting because I loved that about the film. Really? That it didn't have footage from his movies. Yeah, I love that because it in seeing the movie posters, hearing the titles, hearing people talk about them, it, especially um, there's that guy who's kind of like the Fulci expert in the film. The bald, the bald guy? The bald guy, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and especially hearing him, somebody who is clearly intimately familiar with the film and as familiar with the filmmaker as a person that, you know, around a mysterious figure like this could probably be without having a per very personal relationship like his biographer did. But, and then hearing him talk about where he suspects that Fulci is putting himself into it or representing his own like frustrations or things mm -hmm. he's going through through these narrative devices in not seeing footage from the film, it makes me even more anxious to watch the movies. It makes me even more eager to be like, I got, I've got to see the cat in the brain, right? Is that what it's called? Uh, uh, yeah. Something cat and brain, the New yeah. York Ripper. Like I, I'm yeah. like dying to see all these movies now. And it was like, it was one of those documentaries where I almost wanted to pause it on several occasions and go find the film that they were just talking about, watch it, come back to the documentary, like finish hearing them talking about that film and then wait until they talk about another film, go watch that one, come back to the documentary. <laughs> you know, like it, the way that they talk about the films makes me want to watch them so like badly that I, and, and I thought that like, I thought Camilla was a very like, interesting like character in the film um, yeah i mean i know she's like not a character but as far as like film goes um hearing her talk about like you know her dad like really like humanizes him even though like when you hear some of the sound clips of him talking of him being like a self-professed like misogynist or whatever it could really like dehumanize <laughs> him in a strange way where yeah. like but she brings him back down to earth as like a real person um and she is just like a very she's very interesting uh just on her own uh mm -hmm. i found her scenes to be like some of the more like captivating as far as talking heads are concerned her and the guy the film guy the bald guy were my favorite people to hear talk about him well, I, um, I'd, I'd like to tie it back to the first half of the episode because i wrote down what the bald guy said about and the bald guy i think is the head of some kind of like horror magazine maybe something in Italy. Like that, yeah okay i can't remember uh, what it's called he had a big warehouse of horror paraphernalia. Yeah. Um, 
Zombie was like an Athenor, a furnace containing a mix of different components all thrown in, a blend of single elements, apparently all quite wobbly, yet nicely blending together to generate this extraordinary film, a horror film with almost a touch of Western. But most of all, an incredibly colorful and bright movie. Even the color of the blood is beautiful in Zombie. That guy as a character in this documentary is a compelling figure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's interesting to hear you too. I, I think I fall a little bit closer to Joe in how I reacted to the film. I, Because I, I will say I was underwhelmed by it. I was in too. Part, in part because... I thought, okay, I like this idea of the high concept documentary. Like we're not, we're not just going to do the straightforward approach. We're going to play around with it. But yeah, no, once it's kind of set up that way, it didn't add a whole lot to the film. And it really just became mostly a talking head documentary and lacking some of the clips of the films that you would expect in, a, in this kind of retrospective of a filmmaker's career it felt like there was something a little bit missing, especially because, and the film makes this point that, you know, Carlos said earlier, by the time he directed Zombie in 1979, and, you know, and, and maybe a few years before that, he had had a huge career making, you know, a couple dozen or more films, White mostly thing. in the com- yeah, mostly in the comedy genre. I've never seen one of his comedy films. Yeah. And, I still haven't seen a clip from one of his. So, <laughs> well, there, I mean, there was, I mean, the ball guy you know, says. I like, felt like I just wanted to see like a little bit of that. What would it look like to have a Lucio Fulci comedy? And and I'm sure maybe yeah. I can track these down these days. Although they are not the ones that are readily available on streaming platforms here. Maybe in Italy you you, you can get them more easily. But uh, but the, so I, that was something that I, I was hoping to get out of this documentary that I didn't quite get. That, if, if I could see that like wanting some of that kind of earlier before he really finds himself footage i suppose but i i just i guess the reason that i liked it was just like hearing people talk about it talk about the like films that he's known for and that capture the essence of him of uh, him as a filmmaker i should say um i don't want them spoiled for me you know i I I think that's that speaks to you the kind of film fan you are which which i think is a good kind of film fan where you want the experience of seeing the films before you're hearing somebody's critical take on them or or some kind of behind the scenes discussion of them and actually i tend to fall in that category too i think um i don't think this is a documentary that people who aren't hardcore film fans or well versed in Fulci already or or at least pretty well that I think it's going to be a tough sell to like if I put this on you know and and I had just a couple people over who you know like oh I want to introduce you to this filmmaker Lucio Fulci I think this would be a bad move I would show one of his films to them rather than showing this doc oh yeah zombie's a perfect party movie (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong though (laughs) no fulci fans are gonna see this movie i mean they're rabid fulci fans are rabid they've already seen it and and like if you're a film encyclopedia obsessed fan you should totally see this movie but non-fulci fans um there's not a lot of satisfaction here. And I, I mean, I hate, and I hate to say it. The number one distraction for me is I do not speak Italian and the film was so slow paced. I had a lot of trouble staying engaged because of that language barrier. I did not have that experience. I think, and I think I was, I think I was even more engaged with it 
than I was when I was watching Zombie because I had to be so tuned in because well, I a, couldn't hear what they were saying. I had to read what they were saying. Yeah. Also, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, but, but you were you were about to, I think, jump in when David was talking and say that uh, our bald friend in the movie said that there's like 35 films that you can remove without an issue from yeah. his whole career. Uh, well, it's like no, remo- I don't, I don't think that he said it's like removing issue. the, it's like removing the rough from a diamond. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think he meant that in terms of like there's 35 films that you just don't need to bother seeing. I think that he was more referencing like if you want to understand the core of who this man is as a oh, filmmaker. Oh, okay. that's interesting. There's only like there's three or four films that you can watch that will tell you everything you need to know about Lucio Fil- Fulci the filmmaker. Like and what he was about and like what was really at his core visually and like aesthetically and all that stuff. Now, there's stuff before and after that's still plenty worth watching. But then there is, I think, I think he would say that you can just totally toss most of the first, like what, fifteen or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, it's also it's also a question of expectation. Like, I enjoyed Jodorowsky's Dune so much because it's like a sales pitch for this director. And this movie, this movie is not that. They do not heroize this uh, Fulci much at all. He had broken relationships with a lot of the people that were in the film that were that certainly hold him to the reference that he deserves in the canon of Italian and overall horror film. Well, the the point I love this comparison you're making with Jodorowsky's Dune. It makes sense. It's you know it's you mean episode seven, episode seventy nine, David. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. With guest uh, Josh DeLeon, not of the Blind Owls. Yes, um, the other. But he, his you know, uh, second I, appearance. Yeah, I think that was an incredible documentary, and it worked on a lot of different levels. If you like Jodorowsky, I think you would appreciate it. If you had never heard of him before, I think you could. You want to learn about him, and and I think it also sets up what his importance was in cinema because it talks about all these things that he helped influence and even though that project never went anywhere that it turned into all these other projects down the line you know i feel like you could make a film that made the point that fulci has had these kind of influences on other filmmakers because he certainly has and there are maybe a few little references to it in the film but that isn't a major point here and I don't want to say it's a missed opportunity, but I feel like there's still a film to be made Agreed. that could show us that. Because, for instance, Carlos mentioned that he was, as he was watching it, thinking, oh, I want to check that. I don't want to. And I was having the same feeling because I got into it enough where, you know, when they mentioned specific films, I would start thinking, oh, yeah, I do need to see that one. So I actually took the time today uh, before we recorded to watch one of the other earlier Jalo films that, that came up a few times. Um, Jalo. Giallo, uh, <laughs> Don't Torture a Duckling, which is a fantastic film, and and maybe we'll work it into a future episode, but listeners, if, if you haven't seen this, it's it's available on Amazon Prime and I think other streaming platforms. It's definitely worth checking out, and as I was watching it, I saw at least two or three sequences where I thought, I, you know, one in particular where I thought, I think Quentin Tarantino has seen this film a lot of times and probably and I know he loves Fulci and he's you know he was part of bringing the beyond the cinemas back in the 90s when it, you know um, but these things that are definitely kind of lifted from this filmmaker who helped set the tone for horror thrillers violent sequences in general 
in filmmaking, not just in Italy, but across the world. So, you know, I think there's still a film to be made that sort of to the uh, to the viewer who doesn't already know as much about Fulci could connect a lot of those dots for people and could really make the case for him as a much more important filmmaker than maybe he gets credit for, at least here in the United States. That said, I think that this is as a as a film that sort of brings to light some of the contradictions of this guy and some, you know, as, as Carlos pointed out, like, you know, the, the relationship he had with at least his younger daughter. Um, I think it was Camilla was the younger daughter, right? I think right? Camilla was the youngest. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it was clearly this incredibly strong relationship, a creative partnership to some extent. She worked with him on a lot of his films. Yeah. Um, there, there was really something beautiful in that. And she, as Carlos pointed out, is a really compelling character in her own right. Sad that she died just after the film was done being shot. You know, it's dedicated to her. I did not realize um, that. Yeah, well, right at the very end, there's a little, you know, in loving memory of her, you know, in, in her death date of 2019. Um, so that was sad. But, but it, yeah, so I, I mean, I think to those who know Fulci or are already inclined to like him, I think this is worth checking out. I don't think don't don't go into the expectations I had where I thought, oh, this might be some like next level kind of it's going to play around with this. Like, is this real? Is this yeah. not real? Like, what do I you know, I think that th there's a little bit of a setup there that they don't quite follow through on in the way that that they might have. But I think as, as a straight ahead um, attempt to hear from some of the people who know him best or who have studied him the most in the case of maybe the, the film scholars um, who, who get get interviewed. That I think it's it's worthwhile. I still think, though, we'll. I would love to see another Fulci documentary that has a even broader scope to it. Well, there's absolutely no reason why right now we can't say that we do a F is for Fulci follow up. Oh, 100 percent. I yeah, 100 percent. I'm like all right. Very within within 12 within 12 episodes. Maybe I'm. I'm let's super, do it. I'm super stoked to see. Um, so and more Argento. Let's look. Let's look at Argento and Baba. Let's do. Let's do an episode. With the two of them. The rival episode. Fulci okay. versus Argento. Okay. Let's uh, do it. I'm, I'm very I'm excited about watching the Beyond after watching that documentary. Me too. I also, you know, I, okay. So I I didn't know the conceit of the documentary going into it about like an actor trying to like work on portraying him or like whatever. Um, so not playing up to that in any way like didn't bother me I guess but. I I do think that part of maybe some of it is that the documentary is more about like him than it is about the movies that he made to a certain degree. Yeah. Oh, sure. And so I think the that's... The themes in his movies, but yeah, yeah more about him. I think that's part of why maybe there's not clips or that wasn't as important or like... I think that might be part of why there's like a little bit of that disconnect because like the Yodorowsky documentary is about his work. Yeah. It's specifically an unmade and unproduced piece of work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there, de there definitely is a better documentary to be made about Fulci, the director, mm -hmm. as opposed to Fulci, the man who was also a director. And you can't talk about Fulci, the man without talking about filmmaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it and it did get me like fucking hyped to <laughs> like watch 
these movies that I haven't seen. Well, that's uh, which good. I might watch immediately after. Yeah. Well, and like there are a lot of them available on streaming platforms these days. Yeah. So especially the horror and the shallow. Do Do you guys want to plug Alamo on Demand? That's where we watched it. That sure is. Yeah, that was part of why we became aware of it. I mean, we're, we're all kind of followers of uh, the Alamo Drafthouse chain, and they obviously, with most of their, I think they've maybe reopened in a few markets, not ours. Uh, in the ones where it made sense, perhaps. Yeah, um, but they have pivoted to having a dem- on-demand platform where you can rent or buy uh, films to stream. And one, you know, very recently when they uh, got the rights to be doing uh, the full chief or fake documentary, they kind of packaged some of his films together that you could rent together. Uh, now, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of them can be found if you're already like an Amazon Prime subscriber, which I shouldn't even be touting because Jeff Bezos is evil and we're, you know. Yeah, but honestly, um, fuck Jeff Bezos and fuck Amazon. Right. I have an Amazon Prime subscriber, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, if you're already paying... <laughs> If you're already paying the evil empire, then, uh, you know, you might as well take advantage of what's good there. And as as I found out, um, looking for some of these films, quite a number of them are there. And they're on other platforms, too. So I think, uh, you know, for our listeners who are interested, I think, it, you know, y- it could be great to, to check out some of these films. Let us know what you like. I mean, it, it, is there one that we should have watched instead of Zombie? Did we pick the wrong Fulci film to pair with this documentary about him. No, um, or no, I, th- I think that was a good one. But uh, but uh, you know, there are certainly other options. Are there ones that are like sort of hidden gems that we that we haven't heard about? I would like know? to know that. I would like to yeah. answer that question because there are various. There's some clearly obvious ones that need to be seen. Uh, well, those those films that need to be seen in his back catalog um, will I'm sure incorporate into future episodes. Do you think we'll get future versions of Brains in the future episodes? I mean, that's up to you. TBH. <laughs> if, if I can get my hands on them, we will do them because I have not been disappointed yet. This is another... Um, look at all that. Slam dunk. Is, is that a proper... Yeah, that beautiful. Look at all, look at all that <laughs> fruit that's just residue, stuck to the glass. glass. Um, you know... The, this is, you know, these fruit smoothie sours are, you know, yes, they're a little bit gimmicky. I mean, even these are the guys who on the can say gimmicks, and that's where they list the fruits and, you know, that they're putting in there. Boom. Blueberry, yeah. more blueberry, raspberry, more <laughs> raspberry, sea salt, lactose, and vanilla bean. That's There's malt, hops, flora, and then gimmicks. That was the gimmick yeah. section. So I get it, and, and there are those people who are purists who do not like these, but boy, I'm not one of those purists. I will be happy with anything tasty that you can put together that makes sense. And yes, this may taste more like a fruit smoothie than a beer, but gosh, if it isn't a beer that gets you a little bit um, happy. I mean, a, a fruit smoothie that gets you a little happy. Well, I, I, I appreciate both sides of the gimmick argument. I really do. However... If things exist in this universe, let's experience them. Sure, and for sure, on this, cocaine in a movie. This is our, our, <laughs> our <laughs> on meth in a movie. Uh, Wait, we well, should have done that with Bad Lieutenant. Cracking a movie. Um, Drecker was a missed opportunity. <laughs> and now, instead of pairing with a beer, we're gonna smoke crack. <laughs> Oh, man. All right, can I go? Yeah. All right, so uh, 
If there are 10 variants of this beer, I'd try all 10 of them before I die if I could, because it's a delicious alternative to a pure sour ale. And why not? And yes, there's a lot of uh, fruit left behind on the in the inside of my glass, but these guys are trying hard, and what they're putting out is delicious. Kudos, d- kudos, Drecker. It is so good. Absolutely. So and, good. Uh, and if we ever find ourselves in that fake world vortex that is North Dakota, we'll visit the brewery. And uh, it's a and nuclear testing site. There you go. Right. It's a reason to travel to North Dakota go see this brewery. What to get nuked? <laughs> trying to sip some brains and all of a sudden boom boom you know one thing i enjoy about the show is that i i get to learn and to pretend tonight that i was some kind of fulci expert i tell you what i did a bunch of research and i'm with carlos i'm very eager to explore this guy's catalog oh yeah yeah it's For it's sure. incredible when you see and again i've seen a handful of his films over the years um and you know they they've impressed me, but to think that I've barely scratched the surface. I mean, this man has I, I don't know. I was trying to count up while we were talking, and it, it's over 50 films that he's uh, directed, and then a host of others that he produced and wrote. And so, I mean, th- this is a filmmaker who we could spend a lot of time with over the years, and and I hope we do at least return to at some point. Yeah, 100. No. I totally agree, Joe. But yeah, it's unanimous. Uh, Fulci episode within four months. Uh, yeah, yep, 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 yep. That's one hundred percent happening. Um, are you familiar with the Italian style pilsner? Have you had brains or any other smoothie sours? Calling them a sour is kind of, eh, but uh, any of these other smoothie slushy sour beers? Um, and where do you stand on Fulci? Where do you stand on Italian horror in general? Let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX. You can find us on Beer and a Movie Podcast.com. There's a link to listen to this episode and over a hundred other Beer and a Movie episodes. I can say that now. Over a hundred other Beer and a Movie wow. episodes. Um, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a great deal. Uh, uh, right now we're sitting at unanimous five star ratings, so the people love us. Sixteen love people it. love us. Um, let us know. Uh, send us beer. Uh, if you've, you know, if there's a black is beautiful beer popping up near you that we can't get, send us one of those. We want to try that. Yeah. Or send us what other, any other, you know, fire ass beers that your local brewery is producing. We'll send you stuff back. That's what we do. Uh, I I got nothing else really. I'm 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 ready to hang up so I can go watch the Beyond. There you go. What is all I, this about? Go I ahead. Think, I was gonna say I think that's where I'm headed too, Carlos. Is the Beyond like knock out the greatest hits and then go deeper? Then go deeper. Nice. Well, this has been another great episode of Beer and a Movie, and until next time. What is all this about the dead coming back to life again and? Having to be killed a second time? I mean, what the hell's going on here?